The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. According to a June 2021 National Health Statistics report from the U.S. Center for Disease Control, obesity is exploding in the United States. They reported the following. Among children and adolescents aged 2 to 19, the prevalence of obesity was 19.7%. Among adults aged 20 and over, the age-adjusted prevalence of obesity was 41.9%. Severe obesity was 9.2%. Jay, those numbers for adults represent a 37% increase in obesity in only about 20 years. I mean, what the heck's going on? Well... It's a number of things. I think fast food, people are just in a hurry. When I was a kid, most everybody sat down at the dinner table and had a a real meal with their parents. And as time went by, most families were running out and getting packaged food or going to McDonald's and so on. And so the, the health of the food we started eating in the last 30 years has declined dramatically. It's, uh, it's extremely unfortunate. And we did a, an earlier show on obesity with one of our guests today, Dr. Charles Dinnerstein, about obesity. And it is a growing health problem really all over the world. What we're going to do today is a little different. Because of the statistic you just described, it's like we're now accepting obesity It's not a terrible thing. Uh, We'll talk about all the ways we can see people growing in size and it isn't thought of as such a terrible thing anymore. And I have been reading for some time the work of two experts on the topic. One, Dr. Charles Dinnerstein, who I just mentioned, and the other one, Cameron English. Both are with the American Council on Science and Health, an organization I've been a member of since its very inception. And one of the topics of many in the area of health and science is obesity. And they are the two people, you know, leading the battle, so to speak. So Tom, introduce Charles and Cameron. Yeah, for sure. Well, our first guest, that's uh, Dr. Charles Dinnerstein. He appeared uh, on our show previously, so he's appearing for a second time. He's a medical doctor with over 25 years of experience as a vascular surgeon. 
He's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and Society for Vascular Surgery. He's also the medical director at the organization you were talking about, Jay, the American Council on Science and Health, which is a nonprofit science and health education organization. In addition to his medical degree, Dr. Dennerstein completed his MBA with distinction in George Washington University Healthcare MBA program. Our second guest is new to the program. He is Cameron English. He's the director of biosciences of that same organization, the American Council on Science and Health. Cameron is a writer, editor, and co-host of the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. Before joining the council, he was managing editor at the Genetic Literacy Project, a nonprofit committed to aiding the public, media, and policymakers by promoting science literacy. His work is being published by Forbes, Real Clear Science, Priorities Magazine, Science 2.0, and Mike. Cameron's writing has also been featured in textbooks, so young people listening to this may have actually read some of his McGraw-Hill and Pearson Education books, where he was actually in those books. And the focus was to teach critical thinking to high school students. So we've got two really excellent guests to talk about this topic. So welcome to the show, Dr. Dinerstein and Cameron. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, my first question will go to both of you. In other words, I would like both of you to answer the question, whoever wants to start, then the other after that. When did you recognize obesity as a major problem and decide you wanted to tackle it and become expert in it from a totally medical standpoint for Dr. Dennisteen or from a journalistic standpoint from uh, Cameron English? So how long have each of you been working at it? So let's start with Dr. Dennisteen first. Well, it certainly was not a, a topic in medical school. But I became aware of the problem of obesity probably an hour after I started as an intern. And we started seeing uh, patients on a full-time basis. And to be honest, obese patients were not particularly problematic um, in terms of having vascular surgery issues so that they didn't represent a special subpopulation to us other than the fact that because you were cutting through so many layers of fat, which doesn't have a great blood supply, they were more inclined to develop infections. So you had to be particularly careful. But certainly it became increasingly apparent over the, the lifetime of my clinical practice that there was more and more people with obesity and that they represented a larger and larger problem to the healthcare system. And Cameron, what about you? I have a little bit more of a personal take because as I've mentioned in several of my articles now, uh, I was overweight as a kid. It was, you know, a perennial issue for, I don't know, the first 25 years of my life or so. And uh, I waded into science journalism as a profession right around the time I got serious about losing weight and exercising and trying to think a little more carefully about what I was eating. And I noticed the issues that I was dealing with personally, you know, these difficulties with, you know, trying to be mindful about what you eat and exercising and these sorts of matters. These were things that you could see in the media and you could see different takes on why people were overweight. Why can't they lose weight? Why is one diet better than the other, et cetera, et cetera. And the issue we're going to talk a little uh, more about today is, is one of those topics. So it, it was personal interest for me, you know, because I had a dog in the fight, so to speak. But then I started writing about it and actively researching what was going on at, at the population level. Mm, yeah, well, that's interesting. Reading articles from both of you is what spawned the idea of doing this particular show with a 
very different theme as we did uh, last fall when we had Dr. Denistein on. And that is that there's been a change of heart with regard to obesity, overweight, fat, whatever you want to call it. It's been more acceptable. Now, part of that has been a result of a backlash against uh, calling people names like fatty and embarrassing people. We've bent over backwards not to insult people or be cruel to people who are very overweight. And the pendulum has really swung way too far. And I will go over many, many examples of what it has changed. Have you noticed this uh, change in acceptance? And when in your mind has it begun, assuming you have noticed it? Let me jump in first here. So being fat has a, a certain cultural component. And we, that pendulum that you talked about has swung in both directions. If you look at the pictures um, painted by Rubens, these are very zaftig women. These are very full women because at that point in time, um, being overweight was reflective of your status in society. Most people were living on a subsistence diet so that if you were overweight, it indicated a, a level of wealth in very much the same way that tans have gone in and out of cultural acceptance. And in the same time with Rubens, uh, women didn't want to have tans because that indicated they were outside working. But you can see that shift over, say, the last hundred years as more and more of us wound up with office jobs and the outside became the place to return to, to return to nature. And so it became important to get that tan because that was another sign of wealth because the wealthy people uh, could afford to go to Aruba or wherever they wanted to go to get that year round tan. So I think that there's a, there's a cultural aspect to uh, a fat that has come and gone, but I, certainly in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a greater acceptance within the marketplace uh, of people that have obesity starting with simple things like going on an airline and they have extender seatbelts for the people because they, they no longer can fit in the, the seatbelts that were designed back in the 70s. You know, I've commented on most of our radio shows. We're in the middle of our second year that we've never had a show that I didn't learn something. And I'm guessing that our audience, a large percentage, was not aware or did not remember that the pictures in hundreds of years ago were of overweight women, and that was a sign of wealth. The, the one that you just blew me away with is the white skin, which I remember so well as I tour uh, museums around the world, that the pictures of most of the women have very white skin, which shows they, they didn't work outside. That has absolutely never occurred to me. And it's really, really fascinating. Oh, great. I'm glad I'm all done. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> We're done here. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think we'll continue to add uh, <laughs> terrific information to our audience. It would seem to me now that there has been a radical change that where we were very tough on people. My wife's has a puppet troupe that teaches messages to third and fourth graders about things they should 
know and not be tough on. And while the puppet show teaches exercise, it also points out that we shouldn't be harsh on fat kids. And they have a couple programs that teach this to third and fourth graders and they're, they're very effective. So there has been a radical change in attitude. Can either of you give me examples that you have witnessed? Yeah, let me jump in. I think the most recent one that I'm aware of, and there's been quite a few we can discuss, but one of the ones that I've written about is the idea that doctors shouldn't weigh their patients unless it's medically necessary. And this is uh, a quote or a quote. You can see this in multiple articles, you know, unless it's medically necessary, don't weigh me. And the implication is it's usually not medically necessary. And we'll, we can get into more of the specifics, but the problem is, is that weight is generally a pretty good proxy for metabolic health. Not always there's, there's exceptions. We can discuss those as well, but the problem here, it's not just, um, a matter of preference, you know, like, do you like the way a particular person looks? Are you attracted to them? This and that, you know, it's, it's a matter of health. And, and from my perspective, a lot of physicians are being pressured to withhold information from their patients when really all that needs to happen is um, you need to encourage some doctors to deliver the information with a little more respect. And I, and I think this is pretty widely accepted within medicine these days. The journal Nature put out a big statement, uh, I think it was two years ago or so, where they basically said, look, you know, physicians and, and people who work with patients who are overweight, they need to be respectful. They need to understand these, these people's circumstances. And we need to get away from the idea that this is just a matter of willpower, that you just eat too much and you don't exercise. And there is some truth to that. Obesity is much more complicated than just a matter of willpower. Nonetheless, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Again, as someone who um, struggled with my weight, you know, if I had gotten that sort of information, if I had been told that I should tell my doctor not to weigh me and I should tell people not to judge me, that would have been bad, you know, and I have a young son now and I want to see him grow up. I want to take him fishing. And, you know, I was in a position where that may not have been possible if I kept living the way that I was living in terms of how I was eating and, and not exercising and so forth. So that's what I'm most concerned about as this discussion moves forward. Let me jump in and dive into something that Cameron said and separate out two pieces. Uh, I'm going to disagree a little bit and say that weight is a poor proxy for health. It's easily measured. And so it's used a lot. But when we talk about obesity, right away, we've already switched and started talking about BMI, which takes into account the individual stature and calculates uh, obesity based upon that, which is a better measure, but it's not the best measure. And the best example of that is when you think about a 300 pound linebacker in the NFL, they are in very, very good health, but a 300 pound office worker is not, even at the same height, even when we calculate their BMIs. And the reason for that is, is that BMI, while it takes into account your weight and stature, doesn't take into account what proportion of that weight is muscle, which is metabolically active tissue, and which component of that is was fat. And measuring that is a, a lot harder to do. And so that's why we talk, especially uh, in the media, when we talk about things, it's easier to use weight or BMI as the proxy. But none of them are great proxies for talking about overall health. Cameron's second point about being respectful to patients, uh, I couldn't agree with more. 
and couldn't have violated more um, <laughs> in my training. And, you know, that gets to some of those papers that we had talked about, about bad words in, in medical records. And that there is a, a language shorthand that physicians use in their day-to-day -day work with one another that is not meant necessarily to be seen by uh, people outside the business, as is the case for, for many businesses that have their own um, jargon. The gallbladder over in room three is a, is a typical example, or the frequent flyer in the emergency room for a person that comes in fairly frequently. Those are all in many ways, uh, certainly dehumanizing terms, mm -hmm. but they were the things that were used for a long time between doctors. And I think that with the open records movement over the last few years to allow patients to read their records, a lot of that verbiage is disappearing from the written record, though I'm not so sure it always disappears from the verbal exchange uh, in, in making rounds or talking with other people. Mm -hmm. I have a question a little off, off the wall for Dr. Dinnerstein. You know, it's interesting. People often say, well, I'm fat, not because I eat too much, but because of my thyroid or some other physical issue. But it strikes me that if you have these conditions, then you would need less calories to maintain a healthy body weight. So isn't it really still boiled down to too many calories, regardless of your, you know, your medical problems? Mm, not so much. I mean, with thyroid disease, it slows your metabolism. So even the, the calories that you use, you're using them in a much more efficient way. Mm -hmm. for instance. So it's not, it doesn't really come down to a, a simple matter of how many calories in there are. There, there's certainly a component of um, exercise that's involved. There's a, a question of what kind of calories you're taking in. You know, when we talk about calories, that's just, that's a matter, measure of its energetics. But there are some foods that are not used immediately for our glucose needs and become stored. And part of the problem is, is that as people's weight goes up, their ability to store more of these um, foodstuffs for a rainy day increases. And in our current world, there are not that many rainy days, at least when it comes to eating. So the, it's not simply a case that if only they would cut back on the calories, things would be better. Cameron, you agree? Yeah. Cameron, uh, are you seeing this in, as a science writer, have you witnessed a, a change in the focus of articles written about obesity? Absolutely. You, you'll see it on, on web, like popular health and fitness websites, like Livestrong is a good example. They're trying to walk a tightrope these days between giving people good fitness advice and giving people good nutrition advice, all of this being science-based when possible, but they're also trying to cater to this cultural shift that we're seeing uh, where you're not allowed to criticize people. And even in some cases, even quoting scientific research to them is offensive, right? Because it's, it's designed to oppress them. And this is a real narrative that you'll hear from people who work in a field called fat studies and the fat acceptance movement. So, so it's, it's a weird situation that they're in because they're, 
you know, their classic model for attracting traffic to their website and advertisers is here's this great information. But at the same time, they're trying to say, well, you know, you're, you know, healthy at any size, beautiful, no matter what that, you know, this and that, and that can't really work. You know, something has to give and the tension there, I think that illustrates the problem with what we're talking about. And I, I wouldn't disagree with anything Chuck said, you know, between the two of us, he's the physician. And there are, there are instances where, you know, weight gain is more complicated than just eating too much. I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that for a second, but I think what we're seeing today, it's, it's an effort to undermine how we talk about the issue, right? It's, it's talking about the science of obesity that they're trying to undercut. It's not just, you know, specific examples of, of how you talk to, ba- to patients. And I think you'll see that over and over. You'll see it in all sorts of media. I've mentioned it at Livestrong, uh, BuzzFeed. A lot of websites, the Huffington Post, I believe I've seen some stuff there as well. So it's, it's a troubling trend that I, I hope we can reverse. So there's a lot of political correctness in, in this, and even perhaps part of a, the whole woke movement of just dividing everybody up between those have been harmed and those who do harm. Is, is, would you say that it fits neatly into political correctness of changing the language? Well, fat studies is certainly a part of that whole critical theory apparatus that's become a real potent cultural force. I, I, I started to notice this in you know, 2011 and 12. The field has been around for much longer in, in the universities, but the influence really seeped into the popular culture starting around that time. And it's, it, it's scary. I think the biggest problem, though, is that they're attributing harm where there is no harm. You know? So um, like when I go to see my doctor, for example, the first time I saw her a couple of years ago, whenever I started going to her, I was, I had gained a little bit of weight because, you know, the, the lockdown and everything. And my, my wife just gave birth to our, our son a little while ago, as I mentioned. Um, and so I had gained weight and that was one of the first things she addressed with me. Now she didn't walk into the room and go, Hey fatty, what are you doing? You know, she said, what's your diet like? Uh, you know, do you exercise? So she just started with questions like that. And once she got an assessment of what I was up to, then she made some, some science-based recommendations. And I knew going in that this was something that I needed to address again because of just the, the, the way the circumstances had changed over the last couple of years. So that's, that's my concern in this, both as, you know, as a patient myself, as a consumer, but as someone who is passionate about science communication and wants more people to think critically about the information they consume, I'm really concerned about this. So it's not just the health aspect, which is vitally important. You don't want people getting sick unnecessarily, but this has a tendency, and maybe we can get into this in a little bit, this whole movement has a tendency to undermine scientific thinking. And that's very, very troubling. Well, I've noticed it uh, up close and personal. Uh, I'm a very serious uh, bicyclist and uh, I go on many rides with um, often hundreds of people. And it astounds me how many are in fact overweight and it's it's clear to me that their attitude is well i do a lot of exercise i'm a i'm a cyclist so it doesn't matter that i carry 25 extra pounds and i i see it all the time i think for many people who have not been in a large group of cyclists uh, that you we all think of a cyclist as being someone who is very careful about their diet and uh, most people would be shocked 
if you go on a ride with a couple hundred people, uh, you'll see pretty much the same percentage of uh, overweight people as you'd see coming out of uh, Walmart in any, any parking lot. Let me go back for a minute to, to that political correctness question and be a little bit of a contrarian. Um, so I'm going to say that political correctness, which talks about our word choices and our behavior choices, has played a role for us forever and a day. If you go back to those pictures that I talked about at the beginning, those were of wealthy people. They were not necessarily of the people living in the, in, in the commons. And to that extent, there's been a greater acceptance of socially of people with higher social status that are now overweight. You can think of Lizzo, who sings and makes no excuses for her weight. So that to some degree, when we talk about political correctness, we're really talking about virtue signaling. And I don't think that that's changed a lot over the centuries. We all like to signal that we're virtuous. We all like to signal that we're part of this particular tribe or that tribe. Now, the tribes have changed over time, but that, that impetus to want to belong, I don't think, has necessarily changed. Medicine, um, like every human social behavior, is, is rife with politics. You know, researchers gravitate towards funding. Funding comes from people that have been very successful in popularizing their beliefs about how uh, disease develops. And it becomes a, a, a vicious cycle that if you want to be funded, you need to explore topics that are mainstreamed. There's not a great deal of uh, funding to look at odd ideas. Mm -hmm. And the other, other point I would make about political correctness in healthcare, and, and this comes from my, my view as a surgeon, and I'm a very pragmatic person. No one has ever walked into a surgeon's office and said, please operate on me. My career has really been, uh, in some senses, all about retail sales and explaining to the patient in terms that are important to them why one therapy is better than another. So political correctness doesn't enter into that discussion in any way. I'll use whatever tools are made available to me, and I will talk to the patient at their level, high level, low level, middle level, in order to get them to see the, the value in what I'm proposing. Mm -hmm. This is a thought. When I look at Europe, for example, there's much more smoker acceptance. And so not surprisingly, more people smoke. So one thing I'm wondering is, as we have more uh, acceptance of obesity, as it becomes, as fat studies, you know, says that this is fine, you're beautiful anyways, are we actually seeing an increase in obesity because it's become more acceptable socially? I don't know if we can answer that yet. It's probably hard to tell at this point. Maybe Chuck has some, some insight as a physician, but I, I think this is a relatively recent uh, movement or development that we're talking about. So I don't know if you can say with any confidence, I would suspect that's what may happen, but I honestly don't know at this point. Mm -hmm. right, and it, it will certainly by lowering the level of shame and blame, um, change the, the threshold for which point some people will act. And some people will act just because they can't take um, being criticized, which I think is probably a minority uh, position on people with, interested in weight loss. 
that may have some role. Mm-hmm. Because you see, you know, as winter comes to a close in the Northern Hemisphere, you often see ads, for example, get your best beach body, you know, where people are encouraged to get in shape because they're going to be in a bikini on the beach. But if it becomes okay, then instead of getting a beach body that's different to what they have, they just won't try. Perhaps. Well, you know, there's certainly some truth to that. There's also, I think, regional differences that we we rarely take into account uh, when we look at these large epidemiologic studies with aggregated numbers. I grew up in Southern California and I came East for medical school and stayed forever and a day. But the one thing that was very clear from moving was that as the, the summer progressed into the fall and the winter, everybody became more and more globular. They became larger. And then in the spring, they reversed that and became smaller again. Whereas in Southern California, you could be outside all year round. So there wasn't that, that, that seasonal shift in weight. Well, I yes. think most people have viewed personal, physical, visual evidence of what we are talking about. If you start studying the physiques of the people in television commercials, or in newspaper print, it's fairly easy to see that uh, people who are a bit heavier are more acceptable as models than uh, they were uh, 20 years ago. And it's been pointed out to me, though I haven't subscribed to Playboy magazine in a long time, people got me to lift it up at the newsstand and see that uh, they're now models in Playboy that are significantly overweight, not particularly less beautiful or attractive, but the uh, physical form is not necessarily what it once was. Have you witnessed this? I think we've all seen that, you know, and, and that is in part the marketplace. The companies that wish to advertise recognize that there is now uh, another group that they can appeal to, and um, they're doing their level best to do it. That, that, that should be no surprise in, in, from an economic point of view that mm-hmm. um, these people are, are being featured more and more. There's always one in the image. That, that's, that's just marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to go for a break now, so we'll be right back with Dr. Charles Dinnerstein, a medical doctor with over 25 years of experience as a vascular surgeon, and Cameron English, Director of Biosciences of the American Council on Science and Health. So tune in, we'll be right back. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, 
created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So we're back with Dr. Charles Dinnerstein, a medical doctor with over 25 years experience as a vascular surgeon, and Cameron English, Director of Biosciences of the American Council on Science and Health. Dr. Dinnerstein, can you talk about how you define obese. I mean, some people think, oh, I'm not obese, I'm overweight. Well, how do you actually figure out the difference between just overweight or obese? Well, I, I would claim I'm actually heavy bone on none of those things. But um, <laughs> we, we really base, we base the, those categorizations and there's, they're somewhat arbitrary on the BMI, the body mass index. And a normal index is in the range of 25 to 30. Uh, people that have an index of 30 to 35 are considered to be overweight. People 35 to 40 are obese and people that are 40 to or more are considered morbidly obese. And that's mm -hmm. probably the group that we should start talking about to begin with. Morbid obesity, meaning an excess amount of weight that causes health problems has been in medical viewfinder for the last 30 or 40 years. And it begins not with an metabolic problems with the exception of diabetes, but of just the, the stress on uh, the knees and the hips. That was the, the first area where that became a problem because weight exceeded our, our carrying capacity in, in, in a literal way in terms of our joints. So these were people that were coming in uh, to be considered for, for joint replacement. And mm -hmm. that I think is where the idea of morbid obesity took hold. It also became clear that these people, and these are people that, you know, is a generalization of 300, 350 pounds or more, were having problems in terms of mobility um, getting around, getting up and out of bed, getting out of a chair, but also had problems with metabolism with respect to glucose. These were people that had developed serious cases of type 2 diabetes. And that's where the medical concern first grew. Um, but if you look back, medical treatment of overweight began probably at the end of World War II as the, uh, the troops came home and all of a sudden um, physicians had 
a group of medications that have been used to keep the soldiers awake and on duty, also suppressed their appetite, and were able to start offering them to the public. This is the time of Mother's Little Helper and the, the, a whole series of medications that came along uh, to help people uh, maintain their weight. The cost of the, the pills was low. And uh, so it became a, not an uncommon medical practice to do. That's changed a lot in the last 25 years with the rise of bariatric surgery, which is surgery that um, basically reduces the uh, size of your stomach or the absorptive capacity of your intestine. And bariatric surgery, as it turns out, probably the most effective way, certainly compared to pills, to get a significant weight loss. And that's become a, a whole field unto itself over the last uh, 25 years. That brings me to a question that I would guess a major portion of our audience would recognize. There are a couple of TV series, maybe way more than a couple, that feature clearly grossly overweight, morbidly obese, which you don't need to know numbers to see. And it almost seems cruel that they do not promote uh, better health. I, my wife watches two shows and I, I worry that uh, one day when I say, are you going to watch so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, she'll say, oh, they died last week. I mean, I'm serious about it. And maybe I don't want to name a name or the show perhaps, but uh, obviously uh, it's accepted. You know, this seems like a really bad message. What do you think? Both of you. I'm really concerned about that, that kind of programming. I don't think there's a great answer, you know, cause I don't want TV shows sh just shut off for no reason or anything, but yeah. uh, what, what concerns me about, I, and I was originally thinking of shows like biggest loser and these kind of things where they would have events where they would have these really overweight contestants run to a table and grab a jelly donut with their mouth and then have to run it through an obstacle course. So, so it, there's two things to it, right? There, there's this aspect to it where we're sort of like using overweight people as entertainment. And, and I don't think that's as common today, but maybe eight or 10 years ago, you could see that a lot on TV. I think that was an issue for sure. And when the, when the fat acceptance people make their arguments, they point to cultural examples like that. So I think that is a problem. I don't think that sort of programming is good by any means. We shouldn't be treating people like that. But on the other end, you have these programs where, and I think you're talking about, you know, I, I forget exactly what it's called, but like my 500 pound sister, it's something like that, right? I think that's what it is. In any case, these shows, I, I'm just not sure. It, it just seems like we have this morbid fascination with things that are different or strange and um, it doesn't serve any purpose. So I don't know, maybe this is just personal preference on my part, but, but I think these get to the heart of why this is such a big cultural dispute these days. For a long time, Hollywood, uh, had smokers in movies and that was considered normal. It was cool. But of course they made a conscious effort to take smoking out of movies. Do you think maybe they should make a conscious effort to take morbid obesity out of movies? Interesting. You know, they, the smokers are not out of the movies. Their role has changed. If you look, the evil people all yeah. smoke. <laughs> There's the subtle message being delivered. Right. Most of the villains are smokers. You, you don't see any of the heroes. 
smoking. That, it, it's an interesting point, you know, the, the cameraman, it, it, as I think about it, and there's something about the visual image of a person that's fat that has some bad cultural resonance because of, you know, the way the culture has been for, for many years now. Um, and again, and I, I'll reference that pendulum, that, that cultural um, evaluation can change. And I think one of the problems is, is if you don't have these people seen in the media, then they tend to disappear from your thinking. And I, and I don't think that that's right to do. I think that's part of why they have these people, they deliberately look for some of these people to bring into the show so that you can see a wider range uh, of, of humans. Mm-hmm. More representative of reality. More, well, all you have to do is take a trip to Disneyland and Disney World and you will get a full dose of, <laughs> of what is going on in the mm-hmm. U.S. Well, you don't have to go that far because I frequently am sitting in the car outside of a store like Walmart in the parking lot while my wife is in shopping and I'll do a survey of just the visual survey of what percentage of the people walking out of the store into their cars or vice versa are clearly overweight. And uh, it's always more than 50 percent. And that was pretty much the statistic Tom mentioned at the very beginning of the show. So I don't think anyone questions that uh, obesity, overweightness, whatever term you want to use, is uh, is growing. And there can't be any positive aspects uh, to it. Mm -hmm. Cameron mentioned an organization called Live Strong. And as I recall... It was, and I may be wrong on this, it was started by the cyclist who cheated to win the Tour de France. Am I right, or is this a different organization? I believe you're correct. Uh, That was the... uh... It's amazing that it survived uh, when he, you know, basically became, you know, the most penious human being anybody uh, could uh, point to. Well, I'm glad it survived, but... In, in your writings, uh, Cameron, uh, I've seen that where you had said that years ago it was a very healthy source of health information, and uh, now it uh, has almost equal amounts of, of good and bad information. And right here, I want to make a plug uh, for our audience, both uh, Chuck and Cameron, are part of an organization which Tom mentioned at the beginning, the American Council on Science and Health. They put out a free newsletter every weekday morning, uh, generally with uh, four or five really in-depth but easy-to-read articles on uh, science and health. It is the first thing I read every morning, and it is uh, absolutely free. Obviously, they're going to hope you make a contribution to support the organization. And I think after you read the newsletter for some period of time, you will find it a, a good idea to make a contribution. But we get so much uh, terrible health information from the mainstream media, the publication of studies that have no scientific basis, 
that it really benefits us if we can find a, uh, a form of information that we know to be easily accessible and easily understandable and accurate. Mm -hmm. I had a quick question for Dr. Dinnerstein. What, can you speak about fat as a disease and whether it really should be classified that way? Well, again, that gets back to what I was saying a little bit about the medical treatment of overweight people. For a long time, it was pills and pills are relatively inexpensive and it's not, not a big problem. But bariatric surgery has really replaced all the other therapies uh, on the medical side for treating weight. And bariatric surgery is expensive. And that's one of the real arguments to be made, simply from a financial point of view, that if being that overweight is causing you health problems, then shouldn't your health insurance cover the treatment for that? So that's, that's been a very strong argument for it. I, I think the, the community of people that are overweight, and, and please, Cameron, jump in and, and say something when I'm done here, is divided upon it. If it's a disease, then that takes all of the shame and blame off of them in terms of self-will and puts it upon the disease processes. As we had talked about earlier, you know, people with thyroid disease, you know, will be overweight. But there are others within the community that say that, it, that it's not a disease at all. It's the way their body is and it shouldn't be shamed as a disease either. Hmm. There, I think there's two reasonable perspectives on this. And this is one of the places where people, people go off the rails. Um, Tom, I think earlier you mentioned smoking and, and how we've progressively, you know, shunned smokers and we've, we've gotten people to view smoking as something that is uncool for the most part, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, when you look at, at obesity, you know, if you were to compare these two things, I don't think making it a disease um, would really change anything, practically speaking, you know? So for example, we know nicotine is addictive. We know that there's probably some genetic component to addiction. It's certainly environmental as well. I think there's a, there's a confluence of factors that lead to addiction, but we don't change how we treat smokers or how we regulate tobacco as a result of that, right? We, we, we heavily tax cigarettes as we're recording this, the FDA is in the process of trying to ban most electronic cigarette products. In California, where I still live, there are certain places where you're not even allowed to smoke in your car as you're driving down the freeway. If a cop sees you, you can, he can pull you over and write you a ticket for that. <laughs> wow. You know? Wow. So the point I'm getting at here is even if you were to say obesity is a disease, you know, food addiction is, plays a role in this. It's, it's not personal responsibility, whatever particular framing you want to give it, that's not going to change the facts on the ground. And I can point to issues like, like tobacco for that. Uh, one other thing I'll say, and this comes from Dr. David Katz. He wrote an editorial in the, a major science journal called Nature a couple of years back. And his point, and the title of it is obesity is not a disease. And his argument was, we have effective interventions for obesity. Most of them, and, and Chuck has mentioned bariatric surgery, and there's some drugs, even some recently, there's some new drugs coming on the market that people can take. But Katz's point was, this is largely preventable. We have data from clinical trials. We know at a population level, it's difficult to get lots of people to lose weight, but we know that we have interventions that work. And so it doesn't make sense to classify obesity as a disease in the same way that you might say 
I don't know, cancer or something like that, you know? So, so, so I don't know if there's a perfect answer. I, I just think that the point I'm making here is that, you know, getting it changed to, you know, if everybody recognizes it as a disease, that's not going to change what we're discussing in terms of how we react to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, really yeah. good to know because the pro disease obesity group there, they hang their hat on the very statement that you say, uh, is inaccurate and and would not work. I mean, pretty much the people I know, almost all of which are overweight, uh, who promote the idea that overweight is a disease and should be handled the same way and insurance should pay uh, for everything, they're really blind to the opposite uh, view. So your opinion, and I, obviously others, that this wouldn't help is, is a strong a uh, point that I know in my writing and lectures, I'll be sure to mention it because I think it's it's very strong to have an argument against the people that want all of their costs of being overweight to be shared by the public through taxation. Mm-hmm. If we have time, can I add just a couple other things? Sure, yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, so I mentioned the research we have. We have research looking at this and what we've found and not me, but what researchers have found is that when people go on customized weight plans, when they have counseling, when they have input from a dietitian, for example, they can lose weight and, and they can keep it off. The same thing is true when people monitor their caloric intake, you know, so all these apps that will track how many calories you're eating and how much you're exercising, you know, Fitbits and all these sorts of devices, these make an impact long-term in terms of people's overall health, uh, planning meals, has uh, the same impact. And then another thing that I, Chuck sort of alluded to this, but we should probably just come out and say it. People do uh, well on different diets. You know, some people it's, it's a low carbohydrate diet. And for some people it's low fat and it really doesn't matter. The point is, is that it gives them a program to follow and it gets them eating uh, much more healthfully than they were previously. So this all needs to be factored in when we talk about, you know, this is a disease and, you know, people like if you risk, if you read the fat study stuff, they basically talk about obesity as if it, it was just bequeathed to people, right? They were just born into this world and this is just a characteristic they have. And how dare you try to harm them with your hurtful words and all this kind of stuff, you know, and that's just, that's not, that's not reflective of reality. You know, I think you know, one of the things that comes from um, all those kind of, um, individualized treatment approaches is that it gives patients power over the situation, gives them agency. They can begin to make better choices because I mean, the reality is, is that uh, nutritional education in our public or private schools before the age of 18 is, is essentially absent. We don't teach our children the basics of good eating and of healthy living. Um, that's in part why uh, there is a lot of epidemiologic studies that show that people that are overweight tend to cluster together with other people that are overweight. It becomes a, a social quality in addition to all the other things that we're taking into account here. But I think that having nutritional assistance, finding the right diet for you gives people that control over their lives that a lot of them don't necessarily feel when they're overweight and they run into other difficulties in their lives. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that being in shape is actually kind of a self-reinforcing 
sort of cycle because let's say I was 184 pounds at six foot about six months ago and I found that it hurt my knees to run. I'm now about 175, 174. I can run. And so because I can run, I get more exercise. So it means I don't gain the weight. So it strikes me that as you lose weight, as you are able to do more, then you can easily, more easily stay in shape, which is something, you know, you basically have more fun. You can get out and do more things. I think you're right hey, about that. Hey, Chuck, tell that story. We, we do a podcast, by the way, it's called the Science Dispatch Podcast. And we were talking about this very topic, but Chuck was making a point. I don't want to steal a story, but you're driving past a fast food place. And, uh, oh, it took, I, I, yeah, go ahead. You tell I mean, me. I, ha- it, I have no will when it comes to <laughs> fast food. And, um, I, for most of my career, I was working between two or three hospitals and not getting meals. So I knew all the various drive-throughs along the way. And I would begin, I would say, you know, I'll just stop and I'll get myself a diet Coke. And that's what I said as I pulled into the driveway. By the time I got to the ordering window, it really was the Big Mac and they might as well supersize the fries. And so I I learned that that just was as soon as I pulled into that driveway, I was going to be eating 1200 calories. I just didn't have the the willpower to do it. So the willpower had to come from not going in at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think of fasting exercise? People talk about this on the Internet a fair bit, where if you're hungry for dinner, let's say at seven in the evening, instead of eating, you go for a bike ride. And then after the bike ride, you're not hungry for another hour. And they say that during that exercise where you're hungry, you'll burn more fat than if you exercise, say, an hour or two after eating. Well, there's been a lot of work on uh, looking at various fasting regimens. And I would have to say with with the one you described there, I wouldn't be eating at all because at eight o'clock, I'm ready for bed. Um, (laughs) I'm up at four. Um, All of these things are various ways to reprogram the habits of our day, the habits of how we eat. You know, we tend to eat the same kind of things in the same kind of ways. And I think a lot of those individualized instructions are meant to help you start to be, I hate to use this word, you guys will get crazy, mindful um, (laughs) about your eating, that, that you take enough time to sit down at the table and my, my latest rule is, is that it shouldn't take more time to make the meal than to eat it. Mm. You know, you know, Cause I can see, you, know, you can spend a lot of time putting together a meal and then three more minutes it's gone. And you need to give yourself some time to eat if for no other reason, because the longer it takes you to eat, the sooner those satiety signals from your stomach would be going up to your head and you'll be able to push away part of, uh, of the meal. Cleaning your plate is not necessarily the best idea. That um, Japanese idea of eating until you're about 80% full and stopping, there's some value to that. And, and that kind of goes along with the, these ideas about fasting. They're all ways of trying to distract you from your old habits and incorporate some more thoughtful ways of approaching our meals. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how I actually lost the 10 pounds is I can't eat when I'm 10 miles away from my home. Uh, so I just jump on the bike and goes charging off, even though I'm hungry. And uh, yeah, it worked. Lost 10 pounds in about two months. So <laughs> God bless you. I, I'm, uh, I wonder how many of our audience are old enough to remember 
around World War II and following it, our mothers made us clean our plates by saying their children starving in, in Europe or in China or whatever. And what astounds me is it probably uh, took me 30 years to wake up and realize how silly that was because I really, <laughs> I became a clean plater and it took me a long time to realize I'm allowed to leave food on the plate and uh, feel comfortable when the meal's over. Yeah, I wanted to emphasize that point you just, um, I'm not sure if it was Chuck who brought it up, concerning the Japanese only eating 80% of what they need to feel full. Is obesity less of a problem in Japan? Question, I don't know. Hmm? I think it's becoming more of a problem over time because the eating habits we have here in the West have been exported. So it's becoming an issue, but traditionally I think you're right. So you shouldn't eat until you feel full. If you're eating quickly, you should eat until you're 80% full. And then a little later, you'll feel full. Well, it takes about 20 minutes for those satiety signals to start getting released. So Mm -hmm. if you can spread the meal out over 20 or 30 minutes, once you hit 20 minutes, you're not going to be as interested in that, that next bite, just as Mm -hmm. a natural consequence of, of how we, we normally eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We only got a minute left in the show. Say, you got some other questions here, I think. Well, I, I do. And I just again want to emphasize how uh, wonderful the, uh, the programs that uh, Chuck and Cameron have put out. But I was thrilled to find that the United Kingdom has a program strongly supporting excess weight as a bad thing and teaching that folks can lose weight more easily than people think. Uh, You know, know, I think there's just so much out there telling us, oh my God, it's impossible to lose weight. It's impossible to change your eating habits. And the work that they've done in the United Kingdom finds that uh, not to be true. So I think we have to start off with a positive attitude that it, it can be done and it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Well, we've had two guests today, both members of the American Council on Science and Health. First of all is Dr. Charles Dinnerstein. He's the medical director at the American Council on Science and Health. We also had Cameron English, director of biosciences at the same group. So this was great to have them both on about this really increasing problem of obesity across the United States, especially. So thanks for being on our show, Dr. Dinnerstein and Cameron. Thank you. Thank you. My very pleasure. Much. Yeah, it's great. Okay, well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Mm-hmm.